Welcome to AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovations in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now our host for this special edition of AMDA on the go is Jennifer Pruskowski. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of AMDA on the go. My name is Jen Pruskowski, a pharmacist and assistant professor within the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the VA Pittsburgh Grad, and I will be your special host. For a little bit of background, in May of 2021, AMDA launched an initiative called the Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in the Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Setting. As we all know, this setting has one of the highest polypharmacy rates, which increases the risk for adverse events and drug interactions. So Drive to Deprescribe is here to help you optimize medication use in this setting. In addition to our quarterly online meetings, we also produce quarterly podcast episodes. And today we have a really awesome session. We are discussing essentially the past, present, and future of deprescribing research with Dr. Michael Steinman. Dr. Steinman is a professor of medicine within the UCSF Division of Geriatrics in the San Francisco VA Medical Center. Briefly, he is a national leader in identifying and improving the quality of medication prescribing in clinically complex older adults. And among his many other hats and titles, and I mean serious, guys, take a look at his bios online. I, Dr. Simon, I don't know how you spend time sleeping. He is uh, the co-prime, excuse me, the co-principal investigator of the USD Prescribing Research Network, which is an NIH-funded national research network for research on deprescribing medications in older adults. Dr. Simon, thank, thank you again for being here with us. Oh, uh, wanted- my pleasure. So I actually want to get started with a little bit of your past. Please, you know, first tell us a little bit more about why you got into this work. Why were you excited about the practice of deprescribing overall? It's a great question, you know, because as a geriatrician, naturally, I was trained to and through experience learned that, you know, medications can cause a lot of harms as well as a lot of benefits in the patients that I saw clinically, as well as in my more scholarly activities, seeing this on a broader scale. But one of the things that I really realized is even though we have a lot of guidance about how to prescribe medications and to think about medication appropriateness, which medications might not be properly indicated or necessary, there's actually remarkably little science and guidance, as well as kind of clinical interventions about how to actually stop those medicines. And as I looked more into it, I realized that there's a whole other world about thinking about how to stop a medication that's different from deciding what's appropriate or how to start or not start a medication. And that got me started down this journey of really focusing on deprescribing as a large part of my, my scientific portfolio. And it really sort of rang true with what I was seeing clinically, particularly the challenges, it's much easier to talk about deprescribing than to actually do it. So to square that circle and figure out how we can actually bring deprescribing into routine clinical practice and make it easier and more tractable was exciting to me. Yeah, Dr. Simon, I completely agree with you. It's, you would think it's the same, but it, it probably is not when deciding 
how to, and when to stop a drug versus starting it. I agree. So Dr. Summit, tell us a little bit more about the USD Prescribing Research Network and why should everyone listening to this podcast know about it? Thank you for that plug. So the USD Prescribing Research Network, which I co-lead with my colleague, Cynthia Boyd, a geriatrician at Johns Hopkins, this is a national research network funded by the National Institute on Aging. And the goal of the network is to catalyze research on deprescribing for older adults. And so what we do as a network is really help a broad series of investigators across the US and also across the world to a lesser extent to figure out how to advance their own deprescribing research. You know, we certainly can't do it alone, but what we can we can do and what we try to do is really help other people by providing them tools and resources and ideas and community and collaborations to really advance their own deprescribing research. Our network is, of course, it's got research in the title, and we are more focused on the research community uh, as our sort of prime audience than we, uh, and less of a focus directly on impacting, you know, changing clinical sort of practice, um, uh, you know, on the ground. That said, we, of course, realize that the research is pointless unless it actually leads to practice change and helps frontline clinicians and health systems leaders figure out how to implement this. So we have a very strong interest in figuring out out not only the more wonky sides of research, but how to translate that research into daily clinical practice and including frontline clinicians, patients, caregivers, health system leaders, all sorts of stakeholders who are actually living this day to day into our work to make sure it's relevant. Yeah, Dr. Simon, I love what you said there. Yes, research is in your name, but it is definitely clear that your group focuses on a wide variety of audiences. So what do you think, in your opinion, has been the work that your group has completed that has affected change in clinical practice the most? I think that probably our our biggest impact has maybe been twofold. One of those things is increasing awareness and excitement around deprescribing as a concept and the science of deprescribing. Now, this idea of, you know, you know, everyone who's listening to this podcast presumably already has embraced, you know, the, the importance of deprescribing in medication overuse, because it's something we all live in our day-to-day practice, taking care of, of older adults. Um, but, um, you know, but but the, the concepts behind deep prescribing and how to do it effectively are much less known and recognized. Even though people might intuitively grasp them based on their situation, we haven't really had a language to articulate um, what it means to successfully deprescribe and how to think about and how to overcome those barriers that we naturally all encounter. And so I think some of our greatest impact has been raising awareness around deprescribing and then catalyzing some specific research projects that will help people to um, bring deprescribing into daily practice. And this includes some of the, the research that we do, but also includes some of the sort of the spin-off activities, people involved in our network who take that next step and think about how to translate the research into um, clinical practice. And, and just as one example of that, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, based on our interest in deep in deprescribing, Nikki Brandt, a pharmacist at the University of Maryland, who runs the, the LAMI Center there. Uh, she and I partnered partially under the auspices of the network, but largely independently is really an effort of the Lamy Center with Nikki's leadership to create a list of medications that we might temporarily or permanently deprescribe and institutionalize older adults, largely as a way of reducing medication passes and reducing infection risk. 
and this was really during the height of COVID before there were any vaccines and where there were these terrible outbreaks in nursing homes. And so this is like an example where sort of the people's interest in the research um, really then sort of led to these spinoff effects that, uh, um, uh, you know, could have a more direct impact on clinical practice. Yeah, Dr. Simon, that was a great resource. Thank you to you and Dr. Graham for that work. And for all of you who haven't had a chance to read that, please do. Although I don't want to uh, give anybody some COVID pandemic flashbacks. <laughs> yes. Still, still, still a great resource. Uh, Dr. Simon, I want to go back to something that you also said in your last answer, which is, you know, this concept of deprescribing, you know, everyone, while everyone listening to this podcast has definitely drank the proverbial Kool-Aid, I definitely agree with you that there are different definitions here. And I want to ask you more about that. You know, what do you think have been some of the other major challenges of conducting not only your own deprescribing research, but, you know, just deprescribing research in general in the post-acute and long-term care setting? You know, there's a lot of really challenging issues and a lot of, you know, some of those issues relate to understanding, you know, what drugs we should be considering stopping, you know, statins might be a classic example where we just don't really have the data about the use of statins for primary prevention in frail older adults, whether they cause more harm than good. And there's ongoing clinical trials to help to sort that out. But still, there's a lot of sort of uncertainty about what are the optimal therapeutic regimens that balance benefit and harms and consistency with goals of care in older adults to help them achieve their goals. Um, but that even when we decide, you know, you know, that we as, you know, or the clinicians like, like ourselves, um, uh, think that a drug probably is causing more harm than good, or at least it's not necessary. And we should think about stopping it. There's a huge psychological barrier often to, to stopping that medication. And that psychological barrier can happen on the part of the patient. You know, we're taking something away from you. And that's traditionally been framed as a negative. Uh, and so people have substantial aversion to loss, aversion to having things removed. Does this mean that the doctor doesn't care about me? Does this mean that my care team is sort of withholding care from me? So there's there are major psychological concerns they can raise with that. And from the side of the care team, the nurses, the clinicians, the pharmacists, we might be afraid to stop a medication because of the what if. What if we stop that statin and the patient goes on to have a stroke? You know, it can feel sort of terrible, even though they might have had a stroke, whether or not they were on the statin. Um, and so that can provide a disincentive for us to deprescribe because deprescribing can rock the boat. And you're fearful of what can happen if you don't, uh, if you do rock the boat. And so it's easier in that way to leave things alone. So even though a lot of the, there are some challenges around figuring out what drugs to deprescribe, even when we do know and have an inkling in, in the absence of things which are glaringly obvious, you know, these barriers really can can play a major impediment to actually bringing deprescribing. And that, of course, that doesn't even get into the practical barriers about, you know, clinicians are super busy and the care team is super busy. And, you know, we have lots of things to attend to and, and deprescribing is only one of them. So how to raise uh, its profile and attention to a level where uh, we actually have the time and space to be able to do it and do it well. Yeah. For you, you know, again, based off of your work and all of the other work that has been done in this field, what, what do you think are like the key lessons learned that you like to tell other, you know, researchers, clinicians in this space about, you know, medication optimization, deprescribing overall? 
I think one of the key things, and this is something which, you know, I think is a particularly known among people who provide care to frail older adults more than many others, uh, is that you know, the, the deprescribing needs to be concordant with the patient's goals. And the patient needs to be involved in deciding what's right for them. Because if you take a medication, uh, or say I, as a clinician, will take a medication, and I tell my patients, I don't think you should be taking this. I'm going to stop that medication. This is a bad medication for you. Some patients are totally fine with that. But many patients might be really upset. You know, why are you stopping this medication? Are you withdrawing care? Or as my cardiologist told me, I need to take that medication for the rest of my life. And so who are you to stop that medication? Um, and so if we don't do this in a way that patients are on board, we can just end up causing more harm than good. And that's because, you know, either we will disrupt the, the, the clinician patient relationship and really damage the trust that's necessary for all the other things that we do. We might make the, the patient feel upset or angry, and that's certainly not what we want to achieve through deep prescribing. Uh, you know, so so the, the I say the key lesson here is that is that um you know, really, it's not just a technical matter of identifying, quote unquote, bad meds and stopping them. You know, that's part of it. But the vast majority of the challenge and where the effort really needs to be is in the communication with the patients about how to do this in a way that really respects their goals and is consistent with their their values and is done in a way that, that you know, they're on board with. Doesn't mean to say they just say something and we say, fine, you know, there's a conversation, we can communicate our concerns to people. But but it's it's a psychological process as much as it is a technical one. I love how you just said that with, you know, reflecting on the need to incorporate the patient's goals into your, you know, your de-prescribing medication optimization plan and kind of the psychological connection that we all have to medications. What do you see then as like the most important component of an effective Med optimization or deprescribing program um, in this, you know, very vulnerable and important setting. I would maybe I'm going to give two answers to that, which are mutually contradictory in a way, and it's a contradiction that I am. <laughs> it's a contradiction that I struggle with because I don't know exactly how to reconcile them. So I will expose okay. my own uncertainties and, and questions uh, to everyone. So, so on one hand, it's exactly what we're talking about. It's sort of finding strategies to have that communication with patients, which takes a lot of time and effort and is not always successful. And those challenges are a huge barrier to actually doing this in clinical practice because none of us have tons of time and effort lying around that we're just waiting to fill. Um, uh, so, so finding a way to do this sort of efficiently and effectively, you know, there are strategies that have been done that. There are specific communication guides. There are patient handouts, which are very helpful, which use psychological techniques um, to sort of educate patients about their medications, to prime them to be open to these conversations so, so they can make the subsequent conversations easier. And the Canadian, what used to be called the Canadian Deprescribing Network, it's now called the Canadian Medication Appropriateness and Deprescribing Network. But if you just search Canadian Deprescribing, it'll pop up. They have a bunch of these great handouts and other resources. Um, so that's that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is because this is so hard, this can be so hard and time consuming in a way that that few of us have time to do. There's something to be said for policy solutions that just say we're just going to stop these medications unless someone really objects. 
you know, so, and if it's done on a, on a, um, on a, a system wide level, it becomes less about the individual patient and more about sort of how we deliver care. Um, so we still have the psychological barriers there, but if we, if you just put it into practice, we're just not going to prescribe this medicine period, unless, you know, a patient, you know, meets these certain criteria, or we're going to stop medications in this situation as part of our new policy, um, then that can be much more effective at actually getting those medications stopped. Uh, and, and so bull, you know, kind of nuts and bolts, like that's actually going to be more effective in, in reducing medications immediately, whether the long-term effects of that, how people really react to that is less well-known because it hasn't been done so well. Um, but it's probably really important part of the strategy. So how to square these, these two conflicting concepts, you know, top-down approach, we're just going to stop all of these quote-unquote bad meds and just be done with it unless, you know, there's a compelling reason otherwise, or these more one-on-one -on -one individualized, um, you know, discussions, how to bring those two things together, I think is sort of a puzzle that we have not yet solved, but both are likely to be important. For all of you listening to this podcast, I've been nodding the entire time here. This is when I wish we had video. Just Simon, you're com you're completely right. So and we'll we'll hopefully we'll all meet in the middle at some point. But yeah. I, I don't know where I'll start from the top. Or, yeah. Anyway, so then, Dr. Simon, with these contradictory statements, if you had you know one piece of advice to give to a post acute long term care provider looking to either get into med optimization, deprescribing, or perhaps even formalize a deprescribing initiative into their facility, et cetera, you know, what would you tell them? I would probably tell them to um, think about focusing on where you're going to get the most bang for the buck. And that you know, and that is defined by the patients who are most likely to benefit from deprescribing, either because they are the frailest, sickest patients who are at most at risk of medication harms, and which medications are really the most problematic. So I'll draw a contrast here. Say we do a deprescribing intervention, we say we want to deprescribe a bunch of meds and we go and stop everyone's multivitamin. Not really indicated, very few people actually need a multivitamin, you know, so... Maybe people feel a little better, they're happier because they have to take one fewer medication, but are people going to live any longer as a result or have improved quality in life? Probably not. So that's an example of medication that's easy to stop, but probably isn't going to move the needle for most people, although they might feel happier because they have one fewer med to take, or they might be really angry because they're attached to that medication. And contrast that with you know going ahead and stopping drugs like sedative hypnotics, and of course all the attention right. on sort of psychotropic medications. Right. You know, harder to stop. You know, <laughs> much harder to stop in a way, but the really yield is better, and particularly for the patients who are most likely to be harmed by those medications. So you know, deep prescribing is hard. And so we have to be selective in, in whom we target because there's just not enough time in the day to do it well for everyone under the current system. So I, if I can give a suggestion, I would say just focus on the highest risk patients and the highest risk meds and devote your energies to, to within your own local system, finding out ways, whether it must be this combination, this top-down approach, and also these more one-on-one -on -one discussions, but augmented by these resources, like these pamphlets, which are out there, maybe even group discussions that can sort of, you know, achieve economies of scale and do that as opposed to trying to do something that's so broad-based that, you know, most people are unlikely to really get 
much benefit. You're diluting the effect because you're not focusing on the highest risk people and drugs. Well said, Dr. Simon. Yeah. And, you know, you, we both know this and everyone on this podcast knows this as well. I mean, working in the post-acute long-term care setting is, is a lot. And so I think being really mindful and focused about how you, you know, how you change meds, you know, deprescribe in the setting is really important. So well said. So then, Dr. Simon, I have to end by asking you for those folks that are ready, you know, excited about, you know, increasing deprescribing, starting deprescribing, what other U.S. deprescribing research network resources do you want our, this audience to be aware of uh, moving forward? I'd say maybe a few things. If people are interested in research, we would love to engage with you. Um, and that includes people who are actually doing their own research projects or people who are interested in sort of, you know, not necessarily leading a project, but being involved peripherally or not peripherally, but being involved as sort of in a supportive role. And that include as a stakeholder who provides real world expertise, you know, about this is my experience about how things actually happen in the real world, not in sort of the ivory tower academia, you know, so we love to hear from people like that, because it's important to engage, you know, frontline clinicians in research, either as the actual people leading the research or in that more sort of providing that con that important context role, uh, as well as helping to recruit patients for different trials and all sorts of different activities. So that's one thing, please get in touch with us if you're interested. If you're not necessarily interested in being a direct participant in the research, but just want to make it take advantage of the resources, um, I would say that some of the things that we offer is we have, you can just sign up for our newsletter. It's uh, uh, And basically, you can get updates on new innovations in deprescribing, new resources which are out there. So you can stay up to date on kind of new things which are available. And we, of course, post about research, but we also try to post about sort of clinical innovations as well. And if you just join, just join our network, that basically just means you'll get a monthly newsletter uh, with this information. And then finally, we do have a section for sort of on, you know, on our website, which is deprescribingresearch.org, that has information for patients and clinicians. You know, this largely consists of items which link out to other resources which we've compiled and identified that can be really useful. Just to name two of them, I already mentioned the Canadian Medication Appropriateness and Deprescribing Network, which has these great um uh, as sort of brochures and other patient-facing resources. And then another organization called deprescribing.org, also based in Canada, that has some terrific um, uh, uh, clinical practice guidelines about how to deprescribe. And the wonderful thing about that is that they have distilled these complex guidelines into simple algorithms where you can look on a just a sheet and you follow the boxes and the arrows and it tells you what to do and it, it's it's simple and it really tells you how when you need to taper a medication how fast to taper it when you should consider stopping something versus not so they're very practical and they're applied to many common types of medications proton pump inhibitors antipsychotics sedative hypnotics and others so drugs that we see all the time it's not specifically tailored to the long-term care setting but it, they definitely do apply so those are things that I would really recommend. Thanks, Dr. Simon. I'm going to put you on the spot for one last question, which is, you know, where do you think deprescribing is going next? You know, can you give us any, any insight into some work we can expect from your group coming out soon? If not, you can shut me down and just broadly talk about where you think deprescribing research oh. should go next. <laughs> it's a great question. It's sort of one of the, it's it's one of these fields where it's sort of everywhere and nowhere at the same time, right? Because you know what do we what do we do as clinicians? So much of what we do is prescribe right. medications and decide what meds to prescribe. So on one hand, it's just so baked into everything we do 
But the actual research and the process of deprescribing itself is relatively few and far between. So I think what the really things that are coming next are more studies that figure out the actual clinical effectiveness of deprescribing, how much benefit do people really get? And the, the evidence so far is variable. And so we really need to hone in on, you know, how much benefit do people get from deprescribing and where can we get the most benefit and then use that information to inform where we, where we devote our efforts. And then the second part of that are what tools and resources and programs that are practical to use in daily practice that can we use in the long-term care setting to actually make this happen without, you know, having to have, you know, 10 hours of conversation with every individual every month. Um, those are really, I think, they're the key exciting areas where the science is developing. So I would be on the lookout for those things. But it ain't going to happen overnight. So uh, the efforts such as the drive to deprescribe effort are really tremendous because they take the information that we know now. Uh, it's not perfect, but it's really the best we have. And we have to act on it now and, and do what we can to help our patients. One other thing that I would recommend is to take a look at the new beers criteria. They have been updated. It was just uh, published in May of 2023, the updated beers criteria. There are some uh, interesting changes compared to the previous beers criteria, particularly around anticoagulation and some other medications, which are really very pertinent to the long-term care setting. So if you go to uh, Geriatrics Care Online or the American Geriatric Society, those are easy links to the updated beers criteria as well. Well, Dr. Simon, thank you so much for your time, your expertise, and all of your work. And yes, here at Drive to Deprescribe, our job is hopefully to, to take all of that information and, of course, just disseminate it to, to the post-acute long-term care studying folks um, that you and I both would agree are doing awesome, hard work every day. Um, so, and so here's where I'm going to say thank you for all of you for tuning in and for the work that you do. Uh, I'm Jen Braskowski. On behalf of the entire AMDA team, thank you so much for being here. To learn more about AMDA's Drive to Deprescribe initiative, please visit daltc.org slash D2D. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, Visit paltc.org slash podcast.